Growing Up, our brand new resource for churches and parents is out now. Woohoo! With Sunday school sessions, training videos, podcast episodes for parents and one for the whole family. All there to help our children navigate the confusion, filter the messages they're surrounded by and hear God's good story. All our Growing Up resources point to the Heavenly Father who loves our children even more than we do and has the answer to their biggest questions about who they are and how to live. Together, as families and churches, we can support each other to start good conversations about bodies, gender and marriage so our children can grow up hearing God's good story. Head over to the website faithinkids.org and find out all the details about growing up. Children don't start to have sexual feelings until they go through puberty. So when you go through puberty, and you know, I think we're all very aware of the changes of puberty that happen to our body, but I think what we're we're less aware of is what happens changes in our minds during puberty. So you know, the hormones of, that that, um, that start to increase during puberty have impacts on our brains, our bodies, you know, all sorts of parts of us. And so part of that is that as your body develops. The feelings develop along with it, as, as you would you know, expect, because your body is developing to enable you to have children, and so your kind of your feelings and your emotions change along with that. So it's at that point that you start to have sexual feelings. Hello, this is the Faith in Parents podcast. We're in our Who Am I series looking at all things identity. We've been here months because we think it's important. Amy, have you enjoyed the ride? Oh, totally. I think the wisdom that we have collected from very generous friends is so good, we should probably put it in a book. (laughs) The book is coming out in May, Raising Confident Kids. We will certainly be talking about that later. Now, Amy, can you just tell us, give us a a walk through what we're looking at today and how we're doing it. Today, we're tackling the tough stuff. We're going to take on the conversations that we'd love to avoid. And we're going to remind one another of why, as parents, we are 100% the best people, the gifts from God to our children to talk to them about their bodies, about sexuality, about the Christian sexual ethic. And we're, go- we're going to be brave and we're going to help you be brave too. Thank you, Amy. And it is great to have good friends alongside us on this journey because Amy and I feel a bit intimidated, just like you. We have got, not literally with us, but from a previous podcast, Julie Maxwell and Andrew Bunt. Let me leave them to introduce themselves so we know who's joining us. Yeah, hi. I have come from Basingstoke, otherwise known as Amazing Stoke by those of us who live there. I am a community paediatrician, which means I deal with children with learning difficulties, autism, language disorders, children who are in foster care and a wide variety of things. I am married, been married for 25 years and I have three children aged 21, 19 and 16. So uh, yeah, I'm 
quite busy. I also work for Lovewise, which is a Christian charity teaching on sex and relationships. Thanks, Julie. Andrew, where have you come from? What do you do there? How's it going? <laughs> I come from Bexhill, sunny southeast coast, kind of retirementville, but also some young people, younger people like myself. <laughs> I work for a charity called Living Out. So we exist to help people, churches and society talk about faith and sexuality. And so we do a lot of work around sexuality, gender, identity, just helping us all think, what does the Bible say? How do we live that out of flourish as individuals? How do we help each other to do that as well? Uh, I also do quite a lot of itinerant ministry, travelling, writing and reading around different things, some related to gender and sexuality, some a bit broader as well. How's it going? It's going well, yeah. Life's often busy. I spend a lot of time scaling the country up and down on trains and motorways. <laughs> uh, but within that, I had the privilege of speaking to lots of people, engaging lots of people. And yeah, it's a, a role I really love. Amy, do you feel better for having Andrew and Julie along for the ride? Oh, totally. They make everything feel so much safer and they're so much cleverer and well thought through than I am. Hooray! Now, Amy, the topic we're looking at today in particular is sexuality. Mm -hmm. uh, I think probably before my children were over the age of about seven, I'm not sure I would have believed it was necessary or possible to be just bumbling through life talking about sexuality in the home. Could you just tell us, how does it come up in conversation in your home? When was the last time you remember this being discussed? Oh, well... I think we've had probably one of our most helpful multi-generational conversations about sexuality, watching Strictly Come Dancing. So we're a Strictly family. We like watching the dancing. Granny likes watching the dancing. We all like watching the dancing. Uh, Same-sex couples dancing together caused one of, a helpful conversation because Granny was all up for boycotting Strictly. She wasn't going to watch it. I was in the middle of saying, now, listen, this is the world that we live in. People people live differently from us. People are attracted differently from us. We need to engage with culture. We need to have these tough conversations. And my kids love music and sequins. <laughs> so between all of us, we managed to get somewhere good. But, Ed, I can tell you, it was very tempting to just go, we're not even going to talk about it. Granny's not going to watch it. We are shh. Nobody said anything. And, and can I just ask, Amy, in watching Strictly with same-sex couples, did your children want to talk about it? Did, do you think they already understood what was happening? When you know, and, and at this point, we're talking about your children being aged 10 to 15. Correct. So I think it was quite hilarious. I think my children and the teens, particularly who are in high school, and for them, this is part of the air they breathe. This is the conversation that is being regularly had. Which boy likes which boy, which girl? You know, all of this is much more normal, a part of life for them. So they're surprised at those that struggles to talk about it. So for them, it was quite nice to see the embarrassment coming from somewhere else and them being like so much further down the road. So it helps to open up all these conversations and like we've all got something to say. Like you can say to Granny, well, Granny, this is part of our life. This happens every day in school. We can't turn it off and hide. And Granny's saying, wow, you know, and me going, I know, between the two of them. It was good. Uh, I've had people ask me, how do they talk to their children who might be much younger, three, four, five, six-year-olds, uh, if they have a relative who is gay, who's bringing a partner home with them? And so for some families, this is much more real. And it's not just a thing you point at, but it's a thing we relate to. Mm -hmm. But... I think, Amy, you're right. Certainly in secondary school, this is this is the air our children are breathing. And as ever, we say on this podcast, wouldn't it be great if we are ahead of the curve? 
if we are raising the topics before it becomes necessary. But to be discussing them as they come is 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 a totally viable way of doing this. Mm-hmm. Now, in our culture at the moment, being gay, being bisexual, these are labels that are now being passed around, being spoken about ever younger. Mm-hmm. And it is the language used is of identity. Mm-hmm. So to be gay is about a label and people want a label at the beginning of secondary school. It's clear that our children are being asked for their labels. Mm-hmm. Uh, define yourself. Mm-hmm. Which group do you put yourself in? And Andrew here helpfully talks about how he understood his own identity, how he has walked through what does it mean to have an identity as a same-sex attracted man. Let's just listen to Andrew explaining how identity works and how, as Christians, we think about it that is so different on this topic of sexuality. In some ways, the story of my life can be told as a series of identity crises, I kind of feel. It's a real journey I've been on. At a few points, there was wrestling with my identity as a child, kind of top end of primary school, I guess, when I had this real sense that inside I was a girl, even though my body seemed to say I was a boy, everyone seemed to think I was a boy. And so a real wrestling with actually, is this feeling and I have on a side about myself, who I am? And then another kind of wrestling, which I guess emerged more during my teenage years, when those feelings of being a girl trapped in a boy's body had gone away of their own accord, quite naturally as it were, but came to my teen years and began to realise that I was same-sex attracted. My romantic and sexual desires were for guys rather than for girls, and was aware I was living in a culture which increasingly was telling me that is who I am. That actually to know who I really am, I have to look inside myself at my desires and my feelings. And if I found desires for other guys, that meant that who I am is a gay guy. And I need to embrace that, uh, express that, live that out to kind of enjoy my best identity and through that to experience my best life. So my sexuality has been an area which I've had to really wrestle with who I am. But then more recently, actually, um, in adult life, as it were, came to the point of realising through, actually through a number of kind of meltdowns and kind of mental health crises, realised that I was living with a really unhealthy sense of self, that actually deep down the kind of controlling belief about myself was I was a freak and a weirdo. And I thought everyone thought that of me and I kind of absorbed what I assumed was everyone else's opinion of me and made that my sense of identity. And I've had to wrestle with that and process with that. And so I've had these kind of crises of identity, but really they haven't just been about who am I, what I've come to realise, they've been about the question of how do I find who I am? Actually, as a child, I was thinking who I am is what I feel inside regardless of what my body says. And culture was telling me who I am is what my sexual desires reveal regardless of what God says about me, say, or anything else says, or my body says. And actually, with feeling like a freak and a weirdo, it was me letting what I thought other people thought about me decide who I am. But actually, what God's done wonderfully for me is help me realise that what the Word of God shows us, what the Bible shows us, is who we are is who God says we are. And that's the wonderfully freeing, life-giving identity. And so actually, I've been able to realise, now who I am is a child of God, adopted by Him, loved by Him, delighted over by Him. That means that doesn't matter what other people think of me, whether they think I'm a freak or weird or not, it doesn't matter. What matters is what God says of me. And actually, with my feelings, my desires, my gender, my sexuality, those things aren't who I am. I can stand as a child of God, I can uh, be realistic about and recognise my feelings, my desires, assess those, look at what the Word of God says and choose how I respond to those on the basis of the given identity God's given me as his child. Thanks, Andrew. What's your advice for parents in helping their children work through this business of identity? 
my first thing is to make sure that you as parents have done it. Uh, it's one of these things we, we want our children to find the best identity, to be building their sense of self based on what God says of them. And yet the reality is most of us are struggling to do it day by day. Most of us find it very easy to root our identity, either in um, things that we're doing and achievements and different things and how people assess on us on basis of that. Maybe that's being very successful. Maybe it's being very wealthy. Maybe it's being a really good parent. Maybe our sense of self and worth comes from people think of me as a really good parent. Or sometimes actually it can be some of those internal desires, actually things that culture tells us of who we are, what we feel inside. Maybe it's actually, I'm a great adventurer. I'm someone who loves adventure and that's who I am. And actually, if we're not living out ourselves, why will our children? So actually setting the example of actually building our identity based on what God says of us kind of is is step one. And I think it is that thing of, for me, the, the more fundamental question always is the, before we can ask, who am I? It's got to be the, how do I find who I am? And it's just helping through lots of different ways children understand the, the even that simple concept of we are who God says we are and that that's where we're going to find identity. So that's partly something to talk about in just actually to talk about around the dinner table or whatever. It's something to find a Bible passage that will allow you to speak about that. Something like the baptism of Jesus where the voice from heaven comes and says, this is my beloved son. That's a picture of how identity works, that God says who we are. A great way to talk to children, who are you? Well, here's how Jesus saw how, who he is. How do we see who we are? But also think it's things like how we relate to and parent our children. We don't parent them based on their success. We don't parent them based on their internal feelings. We parent them based on the gospel, actually. And we get to uh, enact from them the reality of what it is to be treated as someone who is who God says they are, not who the world says they are or who they might feel they are. Ed, I think that was so helpful. I'm going to do the external processing thing about what we've just heard because that helps me. So the horizon filling storm of the older childhood years are working out who we are. And we either have we have to look work out where we're looking for that. Are we looking within ourselves at like our feelings and our attraction and our desires? Are we looking at those around us who tell us that we're doing a good job? Or is there somewhere else to look? Is there somebody who tells us who we are? beautifully and wonderfully that we are loved children of God. Hallelujah for that option. So that is why this conversation about sexuality matters because our children are being asked to decide who they are based on their sexuality. I belong with this group and we're trying to say we have a better story. Amy, thank you very much. We have an identity that is not about who we are intimately sexually attracted to that is part of who we are it is not where we start and it is not where our children need to start the rush to have labels is not helpful because in their mind it defines who they are too early and and wrongly <laughs> well done amy we are ready then to talk about friendship and sexuality and it may be you're thinking i'm not totally clear how those two things are linked so we're going to start off by talking to Julian Andrew about what is the Christian model of friendship so we can unpick that. If you go back to our last episode, you can find an entire podcast on this topic. But here is Julian Andrew helping us with this. I think the Christian model of friendship is that friendships are the relationships all of us must pursue. That's the first interesting foundation. Biblically speaking, friendship is vital for all of us. 
Marriage is optional. Some of us will get given the gift of marriage, but that is very much optional. Look at 1 Corinthians 7. Paul basically is dissuading us from getting married because there's so much good about singleness. Friendship is not optional. Go to John 15, and there you have Jesus saying that good, deep, meaningful, loving friendship is a mark of being a friend with him. So John 15 is fascinating. It's this passage where Jesus says that we are his friends. And then he says, we're his friends if we do what he commands us. So the the marker, the demonstration that you are a friend of Jesus is that you're obedient to his commands. Look in John 15, the only command Jesus gives is to love one another, for us to love one another as he has loved us. So Jesus says, the mark of being my friend is to keep my command. And his command is to love one another as he's loved us. And there's the same passage where he says friendship is a relationship with love. Greater love is no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is saying that having deep, meaningful, loving friendships is a marker of being his friends. That's the stake in Jesus' mind of what friendship is. So we need to have that higher view of friendship. And then also in that passage, Jesus is modelling to us what does friendship look like. It is a relationship of love and of genuine self-sacrificing love. That's pretty serious, radical love. To love like Jesus loved us, that's a kind of radical thing. He also talks about the fact that we're his friends because he has um, disclosed things to us. He's let us in on kind of the mysteries of salvation and such like. That shows us that friendship is about letting people into even the kind of hidden parts of your life, being honest. Actually, deep honesty is part of friendship. Letting people know, in a sense, the real you, not a, a facade of you. And that's the kind of depth of friendship we should have. So I think there's actually a really stark challenge in Scripture, what a Christian model of friendship is, that we tend to miss and is so countercultural that actually friendship is not optional. It's vital followers of Jesus. And it's a deep, meaningful, loving relationship of self-sacrifice and deep honesty. And in our children, I think, I think our children will always tend towards consumers in friendship. Uh, which party will I get invited to? Who, who do I enjoy playing with? Uh, what do I get out of it? Which friends have a swimming pool? Which, which friends have a, I don't know, a bigger home? Or, you know, my son is totally in awe of the paddling pool that comes up to his chest in someone's garden. And that's what he's basing friendship and who his house he'd like to go to. The model you're sketching out for our children is that we ask the question, what can I give? Who, who would benefit from my love and care? Who needs it the most? To raise our children to care and it's clearly related isn't it to to the jesus care for the weak and the vulnerable as well as his death on the cross that the friendship he teaches our children is to ask the question first how can i be the friend others need yeah so we can model that we can let our children see you because our children should see our friendships and see how important friendship is and we can wonder why why is dad giving up all that time to help that person do that thing Mm -hmm because they're friends and dad really loves them and wants to help them and support them. But it's also the reason why I think it's really important, really valuable for families with children to have friendships with people where they're all friends in a sense. So I think of my, and this is where friendships between families of kids and single people work so beautifully. I think of my closest friends are a married couple with three young kids, three kids, six and under. And I am friends of all of them in a sense, actually. And we do family life together a lot of the time. And in a sense, the, we're all learning from that 
friendship in that. So in a sense, they, they as a group are my friend and sometimes will be helping me with things in life, coming to my house and doing stuff stay. And the kids are experiencing, we do some of these things. Sometimes we go to Andrew's house and do things to help him because he's our friend and we love him. It's almost like catching the children up in that vision and that, that mission of being a good friend, which is why I think it's so valuable to have friendships and it's a bit your church family, this intergenerational thing, actually, Fre- families get to be friends with each other and singles get to be friends with the whole family, in a sense. So the child's kind of caught up in, the, up in that as well. Anything to add, Julie? I, I think sort of adding on to, on to that, I guess, the, the, you know, our society tells us, firstly, that we're supposed to be a nuclear family and we're supposed to care about our family first. It also tells us that we're, we're supposed to get all our um, kind of value and 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 from from our spouse really um and, and kind of forgets that actually you know, if we think we're going to get everything from our spouse it's all going to go horribly wrong because it, it's not um and i think yeah we do need to kind of widen things out and you know help yeah help children to understand yeah, sacrificial friendship. Because again, the world tells us that, you know, if, if a friend is, you know, kind of sucking you dry, you need to move on and get a new one. Um, and that, you know, it, it's about what you get from it and what makes you, you know, the consumer friendship thing, um, rather than um, how can I help this other person? And, and I think, yeah, as parents, we need to be modelling that to our children. I think it's, I, I just, I do think it is really, really important because I think, you know, like theory, I, I think we've just lost friendship, lost what friendship is. And I think it's, it's, it's crucial to all of this, actually. Okay, Ed, so that's helpful. I just want to do more of the working through the processing. That's what happens probably a bit slower in my head. So to me... Part of the problem with this understanding the difference between sexuality and friendship is our Genesis 3 world. So the creation of Eve for Adam. So I think when we've written our Who Are My series, this is the thing that blew my mind the most. So I've kind of always assumed that that is basically the farmer wants a wife. Here's Adam, he's created, he's in the middle of the creation and we all sing, remember the song from, from nursery school. So Adam, the farmer wants a wife. So therefore, for the rest of our Christian world, our life is not complete until we are the wife or we've got the wife. However, imagine, imagine if what Adam needed was a friend. Imagine if what God gave was somebody like him, but not like him, somebody exciting to get to know. Imagine if God created us for friendship first. What do you think, Ed? Uh, and there is some, there is some gen- No, no, you're supposed to say, well done, Amy, that's right. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Well done, Amy. <laughs> well done. I didn't realise that was a thing. <laughs> well done, Amy. That's right. This is the role I play, affirming in Amy her theological <laughs> discoveries and congratulating on her, on making them clear to the rest of us. Amy, thank you very much. Have I done my role now? Can, do you want to carry on talking? Exactly. Move on. You okay. can carry on. We can do the next next harder thing okay. now. I'm so, so although Eve becomes a wife, she is first of all a helper for Adam. She is first of all so that Adam will not be alone. It is not good for him to be alone. It is not good for any of us to be alone. Julie and Andrew just helpfully walked us through. It's not good for us to be alone. It's not good for our children to be alone. Friendship is Christian. It's it's needed rather than a nice to have. Whereas marriage is not needed. 
marriage is not needed for everyone. But particularly in this, it's not who we are. It's not our identity. It's not where we find our value and our meaning. Amy, you were laughing about that concept, <laughs> that the idea you'd find your meaning from your husband. Look, Amy, may, maybe you don't, but some people do. Now, Julie and Andrew are now going to try to help us to make that link to sexuality. How has our culture got so confused between sexuality and friendship? Over to them. Friendship is very misrepresented and has become very confused for, for many people because our culture tells us that we need uh, intimate relationships and those relationships have to be sexual. And also increasingly in schools, because teaching about LGBT issues is being brought younger and younger into schools and they realise that they can't talk about sex when you talk about young people. So they talk about same-sex relationships in the context of friendship. And so that can lead children to becoming very confused. And so that they start to think that because they have got a really close friend, which is obviously normal, that actually that, that means that they're gay. And they start to look at all friendships through the lens of sexuality even though they're not of an age to understand sexuality. And so, you know, so children are growing up in this culture where friendship is is almost kind of being written out of the story, uh, it, despite the fact that friendship is the most Im kind of important thing as you're growing up. You know, your friendship is what, uh, what moulds you and what kind of prepares you for, for life, you know, in, in the future. And, and it's a... Being in relationships, friendships and relationships is what, how God created us to be. And, you know, children are just becoming so confused because they start to think that when they, you know, have a strong friendship with somebody, that that must mean it's sexual. And they also, because they often are being asked about, you know, what is your sexuality at an age where they, you know, they're not even having sexual feelings yet. So they then say, you know, come, have to come up with something. So they say, well, I'm bisexual because they don't know whether they like boys or girls yet, so they so they just say that, you know, or or they'll or they'll say they're gay because they've got friends of the same sex, and you know, and, and it, yeah, they're just very confused, and they need much more help to understand the importance of friendship. Okay, Ed. So I can tell you a story that I think I've probably told you before about what we've just talked about being played out in in my real life. Do you remember the story, Ed? I'm chopping vegetables. I didn't chop a finger. <laughs> you have Amy, I do. <laughs> this is helpful. Tell us the, your story, Amy, of where you discovered that in your family at school, this confusion between sexuality and friends was really happening. So I'm chopping vegetables. I'm making tea. My mum comes home from school. Um, she turns up to me in the kitchen. This is not unusual. She's unpacking her day. So she says, Mum, I think I might be bisexual. So obviously, at that moment, all the little people in my head that are in charge of things run around screaming. <laughs> Fortunately, there's one little sane person left who's going, take a breath, take a breath, take a breath, take a breath. What did she just say? She said, I think I might be. She's starting a conversation. Don't freak out. Don't freak out. And then you pray, Lord, help. And then you say, oh, <laughs> what made you say that? What made you think that? And my daughter responds, oh, well, we've been learning about relationships at school today and if you like if you're a girl and you like other girls you're a lesbian uh, and if you're a girl and you like boys um, you're straight if you're a boy and you like boys you're gay 
And if you like both, you're bisexual. And I have friends who are boys and friends who are girls, so I must be bisexual. So at that point, the screaming people have stopped a little, but they're still screaming and I still have to go, let me help her here. Okay, darling. Thank you for talking to me about this. This is a great conversation. Can I just point something out to you? Uh, You're talking about friends. You have got boys who are friends and girls who are friends. That is because you are a child. You have a child's body. You aren't ready for feelings about attraction and who you want to be boyfriends and girlfriends with yet, which was the language that we're, we're at the stage that we're at. So don't worry about it. What you have just said is that you're a good friend. It's not about sexuality. There you go. That's what happens, Ed, in real life. Amy, thank you. And Amy, you've been talking to me about the realities of having friends of your children at school who have two mums or two dads. So these conversations, they come up. And then I think it's true that with the curriculum on sex education, exactly as Julie and Andrew have explained, getting younger, and sexuality being discussed earlier. And an encouragement, I now think, in our schools for children to understand sexuality. And there's a part of that, Ed, that is good. They do need to understand that our culture is different, that they hold different worldviews from us, that families are constructed differently, that people can have two mums and can have two dads, and that the world is not living. They are going to come across this in lots of ways. You know, the world doesn't live as Christians and we have to be able to be confident with what we believe and and loving and understanding about those who don't live as we do and treat them with grace and compassion. It's a hard line to walk. It is. If we have just heard that our culture is confused about friendship and sexuality, Julie is now just helpfully going to walk us through how does this conversation change as our children get older? How do we help them to understand in an age-appropriate way what friendship and sexuality is going to look like? Over to you, Julie, to do the heavy lifting. So children don't start to have sexual feelings until they go through puberty. So when you go through puberty, and you know, I think we're all very aware of the changes of puberty that happen to our body, but I think what we're, we're less aware of is what happened changes in our minds during puberty. So, you know, the hormones of, that that, um, that start to increase during puberty have impacts on our brains, our bodies, you know, all sorts of parts of us. And so part of that is that as your body develops, the, the feelings develop along with it, as, as you would, you know, expect, because your body is developing to enable you to have children. And so your kind of your feelings and your emotions change along with that. So it's at that point that you start to have sexual feelings and you start to yeah be attracted to usually the opposite sex sometimes people of the same sex but you can see that if you kind of introduce those ideas of same sex attraction at a stage where they haven't yet experienced any sexual attraction then they can get confused by that so for for girls puberty takes place usually between about the ages of kind of 8 to 12, 13. For boys, it's a little bit later, usually around sort of 10 to 15, that kind of age. Um, So when you think about the ages, some of this stuff is being talked about in school. It is being talked about way too young. So as a parent, pre-puberty, is it as simple, Julie, as just advising our children to, to call it all friendship? 
and to worry a bit a lot less whether it's a, someone of the same sex or someone of the opposite sex. Yeah, so so we need to be helping children to understand friendship and to um, be learning what friendship is all about, to be learning what makes good friends, what makes bad friends, um, you know, and and helping them to navigate some of the difficulties of friendship because all of those things will set them up for later life when they might want to get into a romantic relationship. Um, but it, but you know, but it's making clear that that's something for people when they're older, not for children of a young age. Okay, Ed, so I think it's really helpful for us to remember that puberty, that the development through our kids' lives is part of God's good, good plan. So as a parent who has found these years tough, it's a relief to me to remember this is God's good plan for developing their independence, for working all these things out when they still have just about two parents with them who love them and want to walk them through it and can be patient and kind and understanding. That is why God gives parents to children and children to parents. We need one another in this stage probably more than ever. There are tears, there are doors slamming and it's all okay. Thank you, Amy. And we don't need to panic about what is three years down the line. We don't need to be thinking with our eight-year-old children, quick, we have to talk about sexuality, sex between men. Every, every, com- every conversation has to be had in the next six months or we're basically exactly. lost. Because in the Lord's good purposes, our children just keep coming back to us to sleep and eat. <laughs> and, and we can take it one day at a time. Let's listen to Andrew's story of how he grew up and how he made sense of this difference between sexuality, friendship and who he was as a Christian. My experience definitely friendship has been absolutely vital. We all have God-given needs for human love, human intimacy, uh, companionship in a sense. And I think for those of us who are single, for whatever reason that is, that's often feels like a real problem, a real barrier. But actually friendship is the wonderful way that God invites us to experience those things. That has been my experience. I, I remember the kind of breakthrough in my early 20s of realising my real issue wasn't about sex, which I thought it was, in the sense I was attracted to guys, but faithfulness to Jesus meant not pursuing a romantic and sexual relationship. And so it felt like kind of a dead end. But realised actually what I really wanted and needed was love, to be loved and to love. And my issue was about love, not about sex. I sort of realised, oh, there is a way forward for me actually. Church as family, church living as family and deep, meaningful friendship means I can receive all the love and intimacy that God's created me to need without needing a romantic and sexual relationship. So in a sense, friendship is, for me, what makes being an adult Christian single actually kind of plausible. And a lot of that has been raised in the bar on friendship. We're in a culture which really uh, devalues friendship, sees it as fairly insignificant, as a, just yeah, a relationship of not particularly great consequence, which contrasts sharply with the biblical view. So actually raising the bar on friendship, seeing it as a relationship of real love, of real commitment, real sharing of life, often particularly for guys, our friendships are, there's not much to them in a sense if we have them, but actually what's it really mean to have friendships where there's genuine love, that love is expressed, there's a genuine being in and out of each other's lives and sharing of life in that way. For me, those kind of friendships are one of the key things, if not the key thing that have made being a single guy plausible. The question I think some of us will be thinking, but particularly if we're married, is you're saying nice things about friendship. How is celibacy not an implausible second rate thing that, you you know, on a podcast, it's what you're meant to do. 
You're meant to sell it to us. Yeah. How is it not just very difficult and second best? Well, two reasons. One is sex isn't a need. And so we live in a culture that tells us it is for all manner of different reasons, different ways. Culture tells us sex is a need. I think many Christians believe that too. I think A, the culture has taught us that and we've believed it. I think B, Christian culture has often taught us that. You know, Many of us um, will be old enough to have been, if we were in the church as teenagers, in the youth talks, which were, don't have sex now. Sex is absolutely awful now. But so long as you don't have it sex now, sex will be amazing when you get married and that will make life worth living. And that, you know, is a caricature, but that's kind of what most of us were taught. And so, of course, many of us are living as adult Christians, and we do believe sex is a need. It is called a be and end all. And how could God possibly deny it to some people? And so actually, we really need to just, firstly, really tackle that and challenge that and push back against that. Jesus being the prime way we can do that. Here's the perfect example of what it means to live uh, as a human on this earth, a guy who never got married, who never had sex, but who did have lots of friends around him. And that's important. So we need to push back against the sex is a need thing. But then we need to recognize the love really is a need. And that God has called all of us, married and single, to be in church family, actually living as family, and to be living in friendships, which are relationships of genuine, self-giving, self-sacrificial love. That's how Jesus defines friendship in John 15. Greater love has no man than this. He lays down his life for his friends. Jesus sees it as a relationship of love. And all of us need that, including if we're married. And I think actually, how do we put that into practice? So actually, the genuine needs we have for loving intimacy be met because a marriage will never meet all of our needs especially we need broader relationships and of course ultimately relationship with jesus as well and on a real practical level for most of us the real challenge there is we live in a modern western society where we're all far too busy all trying to do far too much where friendship is undervalued to such an extent that it's the bottom of the pile so we just don't give time to friendship and actually that's something for us as christians need to change our lives should look radically different how we use our time full stop in part because we should invest really good quality time in friendship as the world around us just won't, because it's one of God's greatest gifts to us and can be such a blessing to us. Ed, isn't it great to have friends? <laughs> yes, Amy. Uh, yes, it is. And we explored this in the last episode, but Andrew here is saying the, the dirty secret for many of us is we don't have many friends. And Andrew is helpfully saying church, for him, has been the best source of friends. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if as parents, that's what our children saw of us, people who knew how to have good friends. And some of our best friends were those we served with in church. I'm about to spend the weekend with two of my closest friends. It's a challenge to carve out time to do it. It's totally worth doing. They are friends who are very different from me in age. I have a single friend. I have a married friend whose kids are a lot older than mine. And they have been such a source of blessing and encouragement and our friendship has actually been based mostly on laughing at one another's ridiculousness, which obviously suits me down to the ground. So can I encourage you that friendship in church, wider friendships than just people who are in the same stage as you, is a wonderful blessing from the Lord. Amy, thank you. We're now going to hear from our friend Ed Shaw, who is also part of Living Out as well as being a church leader. He often gives seminars on helping churches to navigate welcoming people who are same-sex attracted, helping them to teach the Bible to them and disciple them. And so he has been asked in the past, how do I pray for my children? Because as a parent, I'm used to praying, would they find a great spouse? So Ed just helps us know, what is he praying for his godchildren? Let's listen to his answer. 
I'm a godparent to 13 godchildren and one of the things I'm most regularly wanting to pray for them is that they would have good friends they develop good Christian friends that they would have people who would walk life walk through life with them there'd be people that would be open and honest with people that had fun with but people that would also help them to be like Jesus and to get to know Jesus better that's my my biggest concern for them I don't necessarily want them to get married if God hasn't gifted them with the gift of marriage I want them most of all they to be friends with God but also great friends to others and to have great friends who will help them become more and more uh, like Jesus so as parents we need to be advertising to our kids what good friendship looks like they need to see us with our friends valuing friendship carving out time for friendship um, laughing with friends gently rebuking friends encouraging friends uh, if our children don't see that you know if they, they don't, don't see if we don't value friendship they're not going to value friendship so we want to advertise friendship uh, to our kids and we want to help kids realise that the best friendships come from, I think, from serving alongside other people. I just think of you know, the friendships that I have built up through just being on teams that have done ministry together, whether that's been a summer camp or a holiday club or just an area of church ministry. Trying to get kids involved early with Christian service and build friendship through that is a really good thing to do. So I was encouraged to hear my that my mum's church, they're doing a holiday club at the moment, they have got a team of teenagers helping run a holiday club for younger kids. And that's great for multiple reasons. The thing that particularly excites me is that it's going to help those teenagers build friendship as they serve alongside other teenagers. That would for me be the, the, main per, the main reason to get kids serving in that sort of context that they build good Christian friends. Ed, we've been on a journey. We've been on a journey through why sexuality is actually an identity conversation that we need to have. We need to give our children a bigger view of identity than that. We need to reassure them that there is somebody who tells them who they are and it's much more than just their attraction. But we also need to show them that wonderful better story that, that God gives of friendship relationships and how high we are to value them and the good news that they are for our children and the freedom that that offers. We can be we can be friends with all kinds of people. We can love all kinds of people. But it isn't a no, 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 no. It is a yes to something beautiful. We can have wonderful, rich, honest and intimate friendships. My great relief from listening to Andrew, Julie and Ed is that it, I feel like there is a clear framework that is not frightening and that is not strange. The, the conversation about sexuality with our children, I think, as Christians, can just feel like the strange monster that's arrived and we have to try and explain it away or ignore it. What I've really enjoyed about this is the framework we have. We all need friends. That's the craving of the human heart, is a deep, deep love of others who walk along in life with us. The church is God's place where that is most often the source of those friends. And all of us, almost all of us, have a desire for sexual intimacy. And Andrew, Ed and Julie have helped us understand how we would explain that to our children as they get older and how we would explain how the culture wants to make that your identity, whether in marriage with a one man, one woman, or in same-sex marriage. And we reject that. Some people will get married. Some people won't get married. Some people will choose not to get married. 
everyone will have friends. We can be those friends to people. We all need friends. Do you feel reassured, Amy? I do. I also know that I'm looking across the, the camera at uh, somebody I've been friends with for 20 years. Really. <laughs> Amy, thank you. It is absolutely true. Your family <laughs> and my family enjoy literally walking together as well as walking life's journey together. Amy, thanks for being my friend. Ditto. <laughs> Let's go. Our resources are available free to download. In session four, we find out about friendship and the beginning of marriage. And I did promise you that I would put a link in the show notes to our new book on raising confident kids in a confusing world, as well as Andrew Bunt's book that is now available. So, so Ed, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat that back to you a bit quicker. Your book, Raising Confident Kids in a Confusing Culture, um, is, is available to pre-order now. Andrew Bunt's amazing book is also out now. And watch this space, Julie Maxwell has a book on helping us navigate all of this coming out soon. Andrew Bunt's book and my book, we'll put links to them in the show notes and of course we'll let you know as soon as Julie Maxwell's book comes out. Thank you very much for joining us. Another session on identity. Our identity is in Christ. If nothing else, please remember that. Say goodbye, Amy. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye-bye.